It's that time again. We go beyond the jive. Join our hosts, John Swan and Natalie B. Brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. All you hive jive junkies out there, this is the hive jive. Well, hello, beautiful. How are you? Well, hello, gorgeous. How are you doing? <laughs> I, I'm glad you think that you can call me gorgeous because I don't feel gorgeous, but that's, uh, that's good. <laughs> I've been dealing with sinus issues and I think they're, I think they're allergies, but I'm not sure to what, and it could possibly be mold. Um, oh, yeah. And where you are of, now. Yeah. We've had a lot of rain. And, and I, when I was out doing some work yesterday, it had been two or three days since it rained, but when I was digging through the leaves, you know, forest bedding of leaves mm-hmm. was digging down through them to get down to the ground so that I can make marks on where I was going to put posts. There was literally like a layer of liquid underneath the top layer of leaves. It was just wet. Like, and I mean like pools of water on the leaves, not just damp. Oh. I was like, Holy crap. Um, one of the cool things up here though, is there's a lot of natural springs and you can drive by different rock formations and literally see water seeping out of the rocks. Oh, that's cool. Down. Yeah. That's gonna be in, pretty. in the winter, they make mega size icicles <laughs> that form on the sides of these rocks and you have these like these giant white things of ice hanging off of them that's really cool too oh that's um, gonna be beautiful yeah it's pretty cool so uh it is cloudy and rainy and stormy here uh for the next few days so no outdoor activities at the moment um but we did have a nice weekend to go out and do stuff we had a freeze i can't believe it's like April. You just had a freeze? Yeah, it's middle wow. of April. Not- I'm, I'm talking about freezes. We just had a freeze on Thursday night. Um, and then like a little freeze on Thursday night. There was almost a hard freeze on Friday night into Saturday morning. Right. But then Saturday, it got up to 67. And Sunday, it was 77. So go figure. But yeah. you're not in Texas anymore. <laughs> I know. I know. But I did have a listener reach out and tell me, um, be thankful for wherever you moved because it's a hundred degrees here today. And I was like, Oh God, it's like 50 here. <laughs> right, right, right. No, there's always, uh, the grass is always greener on the other side anyway. So yeah, yeah. There's, there's pros and cons and stuff to it. So, um, do you have any updates or anything before I dive into whatever? Not really. I mean, we are starting our season and we're staying busy and now we're able to get back into the bees with the apprentices and it's just fun to get back into all this stuff. And it's just my favorite time of the year is when I'm by myself actually uh, doing bee work. My my favorite time of the, not necessarily year, but my favorite time of the day, a lot of times when I was doing bee work was when I would have to go back out to the apiary, usually in the evening after doing a removal or something, or, or it was like some last minute thought I needed to go do, but I wanted to wait till it got cooler. And I would be out there and inevitably, like what I was doing may only take 30 minutes to an hour, but I would sit out there for an additional 30, 45 minutes yeah. because it would always start. The sun would start to set and everything would turn into that golden hour. It was so peaceful. And I could just sit there and stare at the bees coming and going and like not do anything. <laughs> and it's so um, peaceful, like you said, and, and uh, just kind of rewarding. You just yeah. kind of smell the roses for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you could just, just sit back and relax and in mm-hmm. and be zen, be zen. Yeah. <laughs> be mindful. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so, 
Well, today I thought we would talk in a hypothetical scenario or, or a hypothetical um, mind set, mind frame. Anyhow, whatever. My mind, yeah. my mind's not really working. So, um, talk in a there a hypothetical context. There we go. Smart words. Um, <laughs> a hypothetical context over the concept of varietal honey, and for uh, just a precursor to kind of go through and, and start us off. In Texas, where I was at down there originally, where the apiary was, I had the opportunity, depending on the year and how the weather, because that was all predominantly weather-based, depending on the weather and the season, I could potentially create mesquite honey, and I mm -hmm. could create goldenrod and false willow honey. And the goldenrod and false willow was kind of a mix because they would bloom at the same time. Now, out of five years, there was only two years where they both planned out identically like one bloomed and the week later the next one bloomed and it was prolific and there was not only enough for the bees to recoup but a severe surplus that I was able to harvest so that happened a couple of times the rest of the time it was kind of enough for the bees to replenish but really not enough that you would want to take away from them especially getting ready to go into winter but on the mesquite side the the goldenrod and false willow that was just seasonal that's fall plants that would grow and there was a lot of it out there on the mesquite side, though, it all depended on the weather, whether or not the mesquite wants a little bit of rain at the beginning, and then it wants a long, dry, hot stretch, and it'll bloom. Yes. And some seasons, it will bloom multiple times. Now, there are beekeepers that will tell you that the bees don't like mesquite, or they will go to other things if it's available. But the cool thing with us is that the conditions mesquite needs to bloom are typically not favorable for all of the other plants to be making nectar, because a long, dry, hot stretch makes the other plants kind of go dormant. Even if the flowers are there, there's not enough moisture for them to produce tons of nectar. So mm -hmm. the bees would then switch over to the mesquite anyway. So that's the first layout. Central Texas, I was able to do technically two, we'd say type of varietal honeys. Now, even in that, there's little nuances and caveats there. And when you look around at different places, there's different things that different, not regulations, but suggestions, because there's no hard and fast rule for it that actually talks about what a true varietal honey is. Some places say it has to have at least 40%. Other places mm -hmm. say it has to have at least 60% of that one source to be considered varietal. Well, that means that, you know, anywhere from 60 to 40% of the other half of it is other things. So for me, my mesquite honey, when I had it tested, I don't remember which year it was that we did that. We had it tested and it came out at like 64% mesquite oh that's pretty high inside, yeah inside that yeah. honey so we could say it was mesquite honey but it was honestly mesquite honey mixed with other wildflower honey that was out there the goldenrod and false willow it's almost it's maxed out it's goldenrod and false willow there's well, not a lot else a, going on there yeah it's such a profuse yeah. you know crop uh and and forage season so. oh and they're they're just literally buried and surrounded in it so it's there's explosive. nothing going on mm -hmm. yeah it's explosive it's so, not super long but it's very very intense yeah and then and when especially when those favorable conditions hit it's just it was perfect so mm -hmm. those are your your kind of your parameters to have all that set up now in my instance i did not purposefully try to acquire either of those or specifically harvest either of those that just happened to be what my harvest was the bees did it all on their own. Now, when you look at varietal honey from people that are purposefully trying to do just varietal mm -hmm. honey, there are different circumstances that go into play there. And it 
makes me hypothetically or logically <laughs> question how some of those processes actually would work. And I think it, it falls more in line. We'll get, we'll get more into this, but I think it falls more in line to the way that a commercial operation yes. harvests and produces their honey. Um, mm -hmm. Traditionally, the way that you hear it told is if there is a crop, like uh, Tupelo is a great example. Tupelo blooms hard and fast, but lasts for a shorter duration. And they will get all the beehives ready and they'll have all the empty supers of the drawn comb ready to go. And they'll have a big, strong colony down inside there that's ready to go. And right when that bloom starts, they put those hives out there in those areas where that's at. They let the bees harvest as much as they can until or collect, quote unquote, we do the harvesting. They let the bees collect as much as they can until the last bloom. And as soon as those blooms start to fade, they close up those hives and they remove them so that it's just Tupelo honey inside that. And that's a premium product. Mm -hmm. But let's think about how the timing of bees go. That honey wasn't ripe. It wasn't capped. It couldn't have been because Tupelo only bloom, blooms for like one to two weeks. It takes a little bit longer sometimes to, for them yeah, to dehydrate. Yeah, depending on the humidity and, and Tupelo grows in swampy areas. So you're going to have to say the humidity is through the roof and the temperature is going to be up through the roof. So the process of dehydrating that nectar down into something that could be capped and be below that 18% threshold of moisture did not happen in those two weeks when you closed those up and took them away. Now, bees are opportunistic. So if you allow them, even if you close them up and take them away from that and bring them back to your farm, as soon as you open them back up, they're going to go out and continue gathering other things, right it in. And they're going to adulterate at least some of that honey. If those cells aren't full, they're going to put it wasn't nectar in there. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so the only way to prevent that is to take that away from them. And if you take it away from them and it's not ripe, what are you doing to ripen it so that therefore you can sell the honey? So I think that the commercial beekeepers that are doing those varietals, they actually have dehydration rooms. They have dehydrators that they're basically artificially uh, pickling that, that, uh, nectar for the bees. What they're doing, what the bees would have done otherwise in the hive. Yep. So the the inoculation of the the probiotics and the fungi and whatever is in the nectar that helps them process the honey and make it preserve it longer is already in there. The water content is still probably high, but they artificially dehydrate it using their dehydrators. I think that's what happens. You're absolutely right. I think that is exactly what happens because that's the only thing that I can think of that would legitimately get you to that point where you would be able to then sell the honey. Now, mm -hmm. side effects from that, when the bees are naturally dehydrating it on their own, they are constantly sucking up some of it, regurgitating it, putting it back, they mixing it, airing it bubbles. out of their tongue. Right. They make bubbles they, and, to increase the surface area to uh, speed up the dehydration. Right. But every time they do that, it is also inoculating it with more of mm -hmm. those enzymes more. that come just from the bees. Right. So you're going to get a little bit from the forager taking it in, giving it to one of the house bees that's going to go through and process it. You'll get a little bit there. But then if you take it away from them, that house bee can't continually go back again and again and again to mix and stir and add. So it's not going to have as much, but there'll still be some present, like you said. Um, and I have been in these dehydrating rooms. When oh, you have? I have. Cool. When a commercial beekeeper, when their calendar says it is time to harvest, regardless what their crop is, when it is they're time to harvest. They're on the calendar. Yeah, exactly. It's, Everything it's happens calendar. by the dates. 
they go out there and they take all of those boxes and they move them into a room and they set them up so that air can flow through them. They have massive fans, massive dehydration units and a circulation system that basically pulls all of the air through like the one that I was in, it pulls the air through the walls, mm -hmm. runs it up oh, through wow. the dehydrator and then blasts hot, dry air back down on top and then pulls it back through the walls. The walls were perforated. So it's this constant cycle that's basically doing this, putting the hot, dry air in and sucking the humid air out and then dehydrating it and doing it again. That sucks the moisture out of the honey that's open. And then once they get it to the point they need it, they take it out of this hot, super dry room and extract it. So how hot is that room? It was 90 to 100 degrees. Okay. So it does sound, by the way, that's exactly the same process that the bees use. Um, and especially in Langstroth and the vertical configuration, they really are doing that circulation and expo exposing that humidity out yeah. with their air currents. So that's kind of fascinating to do that. It was, uh, it was really interesting to see the whole setup, but at the same time, it was kind of like, I don't know, from a, from a, definitely from a natural standpoint. Yeah, yeah. From, from a natural standpoint and from a, a backyard beekeeper standpoint, it was, it was not only kind of deceptive, it was a little bit disheartening because it was like, oh, it's like sometimes you don't want to peek behind the curtain, you know? It's like the matrix, the machine. Yeah, you don't want to see all the intricacies <laughs> that go on behind the scenes. You just want to have your product. And there's, right. there's not necessarily anything wrong with that fact, but, but it is an artificial process that has been added on top of to speed something up. And right. I was always like, I always walked away from that kind of torn because it was fascinating it was awesome right. to see how they had it set up and how the process worked but at the same time i was like but the but the bees do that on their own and they would do that and then right. you could uncap it and you would have this pure thing that the bees did all themselves and you did not intervene and manipulate it you mm -hmm. know and then it's really the true thing and it, it got to go through the whole stage every stage of the process so i know it was kind isn't of that kind, isn't that kind of true of most of the varietals um i mean it's probably it takes have to be Yes. Yeah, it would have to be because nothing other than your wildflowers, nothing truly blooms for months on end. Mm -hmm. Everything has a finite little window of, you right. know, it blooms for a week or it blooms for two or three weeks. Sourwood is, is the same way when they go into bloom. Um, think about, well, down there, you guys have probably already done that. But up here, all of the trees are just now starting to bloom. Dogwoods mm -hmm. are just starting to open up. And yeah, and we've got a bunch of Bradford pears are just starting to bloom out. Actually, the Brad Bradford pears were the first thing. They're starting to kind of taper off. Dogwoods are starting to come in now. The red buds are just starting to open up. Mm -hmm. So we have all of this tree source nectar that's starting to come into play, but they don't last long. You no. know, they 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 have a pretty little show, and a few weeks later, it's they're starting to fade and die, and it's done. Yeah. It's the same thing for orange blossom, by the way. Yeah. And there's, you know, you can get orange blossom honey. You can get some of these other honeys. Now, certain crops like alfalfa, um, some of your grassy related crops where they're going to go through, those things can and do, depending on the conditions of the weather, bloom for a longer period. And that falls more into the category of your wildflowers. You know, mm -hmm. if you have a whole field of Indian blankets, they can produce for a month or so depending right. on those conditions. So you've got a lot of time for them to bring it in, dehydrate it, cap it, and continue right. bringing more in. But you, at least you know that first part, that's majority of that's all going to be that one source. So yeah, so it just kind of made me stop and be like, wow, varietal honey 
it's a neat novelty. And in my case, whenever I got it, it was a fluke. And so that made it even right. better because right. then it was like, this is rare. This was, I didn't try for this. It just happened. And here's this unique thing that you only get once every three to five years kind of thing. Right. And, well, and to, to your point, this is a great kind of a way to do like honey sensory, you know, classes and things like that and make people discover the various tastes. Uh, people don't always realize that honey has different uh, floral connotations. There's um, different thickness, different um, viscosity. There's different, you know, uh, sweetness levels. There's all kinds of things going on. And so much so that there's uh, people that, that are, that call themselves um, honey sommeliers. Yeah. Uh, like wine, you know, but with honey. Exactly. Uh, and and um, you can have a fantastic experience. You can have a darker, more caramel-like honey that goes well with coffee, or you can have more of the uh, false willow that's going to be much more floral and lighter. Um, that's going to go well with sopapillas or, or crepes or, or things like that, right? Pancakes. Yeah. So it's yeah. really fantastic to see the wide range of um, varieties that you can have, but most of them, to your point, are not pure varietals. They have a certain percentage of certain uh, plants that does vary by region and it does vary by season. And it doesn't happen the same way every year. Uh, so that's the other interesting part. Yeah. And, and that's what makes it special and unique too, though, is because, you know, some years you have crops that, that are fantastic. Like last year's spring honey from the main apiary, I called it meh honey. <laughs> It just wasn't, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't spectacular. And in the years past, the spring honey that I got from that apiary was literally like the most amazing stuff I had ever tasted until I got the golden rod and false willow. And then it's like neck and neck on which is my favorite of those two. False just, willow, my favorite of all time. So yeah. good. Um, but this last little, last little spring, we had to go back and think like, well, what, what changed? Well, we had the apocalyptic winter Right. that the happened in February. Changed. It mm -hmm. killed everything that normally would have already been blooming, caused mm -hmm. things that didn't bloom to bloom. And like, it was just, everything was off kilter. So we didn't get some of those early on plants that would naturally would have been there. And it changed the flora and fauna of the region, which therefore mm -hmm. changed the honey. And again, like I said, it's, it had some little citrusy notes to it, but it was mm -hmm. just kind of boring to me because I was so used right. to what I would normally right. do. I was like, oh, this honey's just- You were looking for something else. Yeah, yeah. I, was looking for, I was looking for my normal and it just it <laughs> didn't happen. Um, I do have, still, because I'm hoarding it, I do still have honey and- You're I have, a honey hoarder too. I've got my yeah. secret stash I'm not sharing. <laughs> I have, I have, mine's locked down here. <laughs> yeah. It's like a safe. <laughs> so I have maybe- maybe a gallon or a gallon and a half of dark winter honey that is still liquid. No. It's like taffy because it's cold, but there's no crystals in it. It is liquid. You you stir it up and you can like do this and it stays. <laughs> like, That's cool. Yeah. I think it's, is it the parsimon honey that does that? I'm not sure. I, I, there's, so avocado will make a dark, rich honey that very much reminds me of our winter honey or our fall honey. Mm -hmm. And persimmon could be something that goes into that, that gives it that bitter, dark taste to it. Yeah. Um, that was something that I think Tara was talking about too, that persimmon honey is, has those characteristics to it. It's, so, it tastes like creme brulee a little bit. It has the, a little bit of a prune like a creme brulee kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, 
it's awesome. I, lo- I love that one as well. Yeah. But um, when it comes to putting in my tea, I think it's too strong. It's so. a, adds, it definitely adds a flavor. It's not like the spring ones it's that are light great. and flavor. On vanilla ice cream too. I bet so. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you get, you get, you can have, it's not a sweet savory, but it's close because you can have that strong bitter, but then you can have the smooth sweet to go with the ice cream. So yeah. Yeah. I was going to say what's really cool is, uh, you know, you've got the varietals that are sold that are basically dehydrated commercially and all that stuff. But if you know your local beekeeper, you can have access to some of that local variety based on the season. And um, I think that it's better than to do that than to go to a store that's selling um, orange blossom in Texas, for example. I've seen that happen. We don't make orange blossom, maybe in the South Coast, uh, but where we are in Austin, Central Texas, there's no orange blossom. So that honey has been imported yeah. and that means just take texas and go north it's not yeah. there at all they're not making that honey but they're selling it under their label and, right. and so you don't really i mean there's a whole lot of things that go on into the beekeeping industry like this where um beekeepers don't always sell their own honey right well there was um there was a beekeeper that i came across at a farmer's market that was selling wajillo right i was like oh where where are you located and they told yeah. me and i was like that's not your honey there's that's no wahio no yeah. down there than enough yeah. quantity that you could actually harvest that and have wahio honey right. that's not that's not how right. that works so that's and we mentioned this before on one of the other episodes that that is a good way to tell what somebody is specifically doing and right it's also a way to kind of differentiate or, or you know you can have a conversation with them and they they may very well be up front and say oh no 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 this is stuff that we wholesale and we get in just because people like the variety and and so we, yeah, we and provide it here but it fair. is not ours yeah that's they, fair. yeah if they disclose that more power to them mm-hmm. it's the ones that put their label on it and don't ever say a word about it and pretend that's like right. it's their honey that that's and that you gets see the back you know, backroom deals where they're like shh come on yeah. don't tell anyone kind of it's a big secret i was like that's deceiving that's yeah. disappointing and deceiving but yeah i've i've uh i have witnessed that at some of these state level beekeeper associations where little deals will be made on the side and then when they show up you know a person from the far south east corner of the state is in the bark back parking lot with somebody from the far northwest corner of the state as well buying trading and selling honey. honey to each other you know and i'm like in the dark of the night yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> but you know i mean if you deal with a local beekeeper that's not a commercial beekeeper and they have enough honey to sell through grocery stores or oh, that's um, always can, a big key right they're definitely too. buying their honey and reselling it so there's something to know most beekeepers that are local and smaller scales uh, scale will actually run out every year yep. because there's limited production that only one person can go through yeah i i was able to maintain one restaurant and two storefronts and one of those storefronts was mm, like they would buy whatever i had when i had it Mm-hmm. And so it was basically, they would get maybe two or three orders a year. Mm-hmm. And then they would end up going sometimes if depending on how it spread out, they may end up going January, February, March, not have any honey available at all because I didn't have any to sell to them. And mm-hmm. then when I'd get some back in, they'd immediately be like, Oh, let us know, let us know, you know, but 
I couldn't ever put my honey in, in a major box chain store. It can't be in Walmart or HEB or Kroger or, you know, anything like that. That's no, because you, you have to have thousands of hives to do right. something like that. You know, I mean, the egg and cut it. <laughs> right. And even as a farmer's market production, I find it's kind of hard unless you've got a, a whole crew of people, a company that's a little bit bigger than just one or two people. That's true too, because it does definitely take up your time. But that is another thing though, that I noticed, especially down there in that area is you would go to a farmer's market and rarely did you find the mom and pop truly making their own honey. True. You found the people that the were larger. selling it in the grocery store representing out there. And rarely did I see them sell honey, but their whole thing is it was marketing. You see us at the farmer's market. So the next time you're in the grocery store, you see it and you remember and you're like, oh, and you go ahead and buy it because in your head, you saw us at the farmer market. So we're local and it's it's honey from your area. But it's all a self-sustaining thing to have the volume for either one and even more so for both. Chances are you're buying and reselling. Yeah, you you, you almost have to be. Um, it, it Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a tricky thing. So again, it, it to each their own. You have to decide oh, yeah, what no, makes absolutely. sense for, for you and for your business prospects and everything. But I just kind of, I don't know why that crossed my mind. I was sitting there thinking about varietal honey. Oh, okay. Well, so last night um, we met a couple of our new neighbors that we hadn't met before. And so I did a little sampling mm-hmm. of three different types of honey, all came from the exact same location at different times of the year radically different in color and taste and texture, everything else. So I did three little jars and I took over to them and I was talking to them about, you know, how that worked. And they were just dumbfounded that like, not only is there different tastes and varieties, but you're telling me these didn't come from different places. This was the same set of bees on the same land, just different times of the year. And I'm like, yep, different times of the year, different years. It all possibly different years. Yes, exactly. And so that conversation kind of made it like spark back in my head. And I was like, you know, varietal honey, there's no way to do it without cheating to get that true varietal honey that you're seeing in the stores, right? At the level blossom and and things like that. There's no way to do it without cheating because if you truly, and, and this was part of the conversation they have, uh, she had tasted blackberry honey before Mm -hmm. because they have a farm that has a massive amount of blackberries. And there used to be a beekeeper. They would have bees out there and that honey that they got from that beekeeper when she was growing up, was the best honey in her opinion that she had ever had as a kid everything that you've had that's sweet or delicious is going to be the best ever (laughs) yeah it's nostalgia so she wanted to know if we could put bees out there and get blackberry honey and i was like well there's two ways we could do it we could put them out there and just leave them and Mm -hmm. we could go through the whole process of harvesting you know we could harvest at different times or harvest it all at once or whatever and then you could get that and it would have some in it or if you wanted to try to increase the potential of having just blackberry honey, then we would time the bloom, right. put the colonies that were ready out there. When the bloom started, as soon as the bloom stops, we take them away. And I was like, and that's where you get your, your varietal honey from. But in the back of my mind, and what I didn't say to her was all of a sudden those wheels start turning. And I was <laughs> like, now, wait a minute. Cause I've never done that when I got my other honeys, I didn't have to. So I'm like, if I do that and I put them out there and I do it, and then I take them away that honey's not going to be right. And that's no. what started this whole chain of thought. That I was like, process, yeah. yeah. So I was like, maybe that's what we should talk about today is like some of the things that, that you know, behind the point. curtain. So 
Well, I mean, and I don't know about you, but um, as as I have 200 colonies of our own that we're managing plus another 150 that we're managing for other people, that's kind of hard to keep track of everything. And you put those um, supers or you harvest that honey at the ta- in a timely fashion, that can be very tricky all of a sudden <laughs> to do that. Not only that, but let's see, like, if I were going to try to, like, if I wanted to try to emulate that, I probably could set something up, but I, we're talking about rigging something, right? Like I'm going to be bringing in extra space eaters. I'll take all the space eaters from the house, put them in one room. <laughs> I'm going to take the dehydrator and I'm going to turn it on high. I'm going to have right. the boxes set up on their ends. I'm going to be blowing air through there to circulate through the boxes. That's a lot of work in and of itself. And we have mentioned, uh, I have mentioned many times on the show, I hate cleaning up after the harvesting process so oh my concept, gosh that's so much work <laughs> the process of or the concept of doing this singular harvest just to get this singular bloom doing the harvest and then extracting it and cleaning it up is enough of a challenge without I having to, to build an, this heat and, room <laughs> and an additional level of complexity to keep track of all of it no, yeah, that, that's, uh... yeah. But you know, there's something else is that even there's season, there's location, but also even in the same box in different frames or bars, you can have a different taste. So if you really want to be very um, uh, increasing your level of uh, awareness of the various things that the bees are getting into, I recommend harvesting one by one uh, as they come through one frame at a time, and yeah. just extracting them without mixing them together. Yep. So that's another thing that the honey sommelier was talking about. The the honey te, uh, honey sensory expert person was talking about. Uh, Maria Marchesi. Yeah, she's Maria Marchesi. Marchesi. Yes. Yeah, she's she been on was, the show before. Oh yeah, she's great. But she was talking how once you start mixing all the different varieties of honey, I'm not talking about true wildflower honey that the right. bees have made in one hive in one location, whatever. I'm talking about you take, you get some from this beekeeper, you get some from that one, you get some from this apiary and that one, and you mix everything. You're losing a lot of the depth and um, um, complexity of your product. It basically waters it down in a way, not watering it down per se, but just kind of diffuses this, the, the taste yep. and make it sit more generic and actually less tasty. If so. anybody listening is curious what that would be like, go to the store and buy any store-bought honey because that's exactly. exactly what they do. They take it all. They get it from multiple different sources. They mix it's got it together no depth. and they separate it out in, and they, that way, Every time they sell this jar, it is always this color and it is always this flavor because it is all mixed together and blended Mm -hmm. and you lose all of that. And that's what most people think of as honey. That's what they, that's what they, that's what they've grown up on. That's all they know. So when they taste real honey, they're just floored. Their mind explodes. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, what? And especially comb honey. (laughs) Have you ever, I I always tell people you haven't lived until you've tried comb honey straight from the hive. Like comb honey in the wax. Yeah. Oh. that's a whole other experience in and of itself too. That's, that's a, that is a unique treat that just us beekeepers get to experience while we're out there. Unless, unless you know, it, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I mean, the literal, like, like if you take your hive tool and you gouge a little piece out and you oh, be like shit. right there, 
Yeah. Oh yeah, the, with the warm straight out of the hive, fresh, yeah. and it still has some pollen in it and all this stuff. Oh my gosh, so this delicious. It's yeah, just kind of a just, for uh, foodies that that would be a rite of passage. I think. I think it would too. You just need to be careful and make sure that the colony you try that with is uh, in a good mood that day because you don't have to remove your veil to try to, to try to take that bite. And if they're mad at you for taking for that, their honey. Yeah. <laughs> that may be bad. Yeah, You may get two first experiences, right. the honey and then the sting that accompanied it right in almost the same spot. Um, oh, by yeah. the way, that brings up a point. If you don't like to harvest, they could do, do a big harvest and do all the cleanup of the equipment and all that stuff, especially with extractors. If you're a backyard beekeeper, which most of us are, you can harvest a frame here, a frame there, or bar here, and, and just scrape it and crush and strain and, and just have enough for the week or whatever for your family and then start over in a couple of weeks. Now, you don't have to do those big harvests. For somebody who is doing top bar hives mm -hmm. or doing a foundationless with no wire, mm -hmm. this is something that I will do quite frequently. And it's because with a plastic insert screen that goes mm -hmm. into the top of a bucket, I can clean up a sum total of two buckets and one screen. And that's all my cleanup other than my hands mm -hmm. by doing crush and strain. So I can take a bar, I can cut that comb, I can crush it up, let it go through my two bucket system of filtering down and straining itself out by gravity and then separate that out. And I can take a bucket outside with a power hose and wash that sucker off. That's no big deal. Yeah. It's the cleaning the extractor, cleaning the extraction tools, cleaning all that crap that goes along with it. And then having the big tub of all the cappings that you got to then go through and process. Right. That's the pain in the butt that I don't like. But doing a crush and strain, sure. I can even do it with a pitcher and a cheesecloth and a colander in the kitchen for a tiny little comb. That's right. You or know, a little um, paint strainer or, you know, something like that. They have, they have the little ones they have for the five gallon buckets. They have several sizes. You can even put it in that bag, that paint strainer, crush it right there above like a, a, a pot yeah. and hang it from your kitchen sink and let it drain. You don't just even drain need out a of bucket. Bag. Yeah. Just drain yeah, it. Straight or out of anything to crush it. So it's fantastic. I, I find it I like to gather every single drop of my honey because I think that the bees have worked so hard for it. So that's my favorite way to do things because I can take that bag of cappings and I can swish it into water and then my cappings are clean. I've got a sweet water that I use for um, lemonade or whatever. I was going to say tea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, tea, I, yes. Except that the tea, I, I try to make sure the temperature is low. Well, that's true. You so, have to, you could do sun tea though. Exactly. You could do sun tea with that or lemonades or things like that. Lemonades so I use too. that all the time. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, the, the, the regular tea, I just kind of, uh, I bring it down to hundred Fahrenheit, which is basically lukewarm. It's just my temp room temperature almost. And before and I out of your faucet can be hotter than that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I just want to at hundred or less is from keeping the nutritional value of my honey, basically. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned early or just a little bit ago there was that, you know, there's different things in the frames and there's different things. One of the aspects that you will notice when you come across, if you've got a colony that was big enough that it had honey and it overwintered and it did not use all that honey, mm -hmm. they will leave it and they will start bringing nectar and they will go through and 
sometimes you'll see it on one comb where it's like you hold it up to the light and it's dark over here and light over here. Those are two different seasons of honey and two different sources. And if you're extracting everything all at once, those are going to mix in and your stronger, darker honeys will absolutely overpower the taste and flavor of your weaker, those, those spring honeys with those nice floral notes, they're very subtle and very Mm -hmm. fragile. And it's very easy for this dominant dark honey to come in there and just ruin all that. You'll still get an interesting tasting honey, but it's, it's not going to be the same. Right. So when I get my, like you hear me talk about winter honey all the time, the winter honey that I get is usually rich, fall, late fall honey that they've went and they pulled in and they have not used it over the winter. And I will come in when I do my last checks in the spring and we're getting ready for that flow to start. I take it out yeah, me too. because I don't want it to, to adulterate basically the other stuff that's getting ready to come in. That's my favorite thing. So yeah. I take it out and extract it. So all of a sudden in like March, I suddenly have, have winter honey. Fall- Oh, honey, yeah. yeah. It's like, well, how did you get honey all of a sudden? Well, technically they, they did it last fall and right. they didn't use it. So now I'm extracting it because they're getting ready to make like my creme de la creme honey. And I don't want it in there. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> well, and they don't really care for it. It looks like they, they kind of like let, leave it aside and they want fresh nectar instead. So that stuff ends up setting most of the summer if you don't pull it out anyway. Um, the other thing is that you want to, um, you want to make sure that you pull out when you're doing your space management, which is another concept. It, you want to move that honey away from the bird's nest, especially if you're in a horizontal configuration, because that's a barrier to the queen laying on the other side of it. That's a that's a like a follower board as far as they're concerned. Yeah. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. You want to make space for your bird's nest to expand. Yeah, um, I think beyond that. Here on Patreon, for anybody who's at the B Academy level, the there is a training video out there on, I think it's going to be advanced top bar or top bar comb management or something along those lines. And mm-hmm. it does talk about that coming out of winter after your first year and you've come out of winter going through and actually taking the comb. Cause usually your brood nest is going to be up towards the front of the hive and yeah. the excess honey that they didn't eat is going to be towards the back, but they're going to start building new comb they're going to do it behind that honey. And that, that yes. honey makes a barrier for the queen not to expand. So it talks about taking those comb, move right. them to the very front, and then you have all of your brood's nest and then empty comb and then any new comb they build, which right. gives her the ability to infinitely expand as the comb expands and not be stopped. Right. So, um, Which is why horizontal, yeah, horizontal beekeeping is awesome. And that's true also of long length straws or even lay-ins to a certain extent. Anything that's going to be horizontal is going to go through that. The alternative is if you don't do that, that brood's nest is going to be limited between those honey walls and you're going to have congestion. And that's going to um, increase the chances that they do swarm earlier on. You're going to have population that's stuck, that queen has nowhere to lay. So that's why very often in horizontal configuration, you do some of that space management, expanding the space that they would have for uh, brood laying. And if you have drawn comb, that's the best time of the year to insert that at the edges of your brood brood's yeah. nest. Help expand it, open it up and give them more space that they can utilize immediately while that's you're waiting right. on them to build new stuff. Because uh, I, did, I did listen to one of those episodes where you and Ken were talking about that. Uh, empty comb is not empty space for the bees. Empty was, space is empty, not empty. Yeah, empty, undrawn, un, empty space is nothing. Undrawn not comb that. is nothing. They only look at drawn empty comb From that they can immediately store especially. food or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has to be utilized, something that can be food Ready or babies right at the bat. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, so that's, something that's why mind. it's a golden golden resource it's to have. It's the beekeeper's gold. Honey is to a certain extent, but really the beekeeper's management system and the drone worker comb is the gold. Yep. That's that's what you can help expand infinitely right off the bat. It, it helps. It really does. That's why awesome. the first year is so hard because you don't have yes, any of that you stuff. don't have anything. I'm yeah. thinking about all, all the new beekeepers that don't have any, even any old comb to bait their swarm traps or get their packages started. And I always feel bad. And there's always such a rush in the spring for that. And everybody's asking for that. And we're sitting there, we're like, mm, not sharing. <laughs> My old comb that I have at the moment that I'm using for bait hives is pretty much only able to be used for bait hives because yeah. it is comb that was on top of the hotel that oh melted. it's been there for a while well mm -hmm. no it melted because it got so freaking oh. hot up there and so it was um it was wired so it was foundationless with wire and mm -hmm. as it melted where the wires are it kind of maintained some of its shape yes yeah, other so sections that. like fell out on top of itself so it's not really anything that they could utilize but it is comb and That's it has strong. the pheromones and the scents and the smells and stuff to it so you put it in there it can help lure them in and then the rest of it is empty frames for them to go through or empty bars for them to go through and build their own comb which you want them to do anyway they're primed to do that when a swarm moves in so but that's what i'm using right now in my swarm traps are those old old comb out of those frames that were up on top of the hotel they were in the very top box and yeah. like you said that heat and especially in Texas when it's a hundred plus degrees for multiple days on end and you're up on a roof and there's and a glass reflecting wall. and wolf and the roof reflecting heat. It in a Langstroth, yeah, it's like it doesn't happen in a uh, two-inch lumber horizontal hive. That yeah. whether they be long Langstroths or top bars. I'm trying to be less uh <laughs> discriminatory against the Langstroth equipment. <laughs> yeah, using the using the terminology horizontal. Hive. however you choose to do it exactly it's fine that's more inclusive. regardless yeah regardless if it's a long laying a lay-ins a top bar yeah. whatever wink wink yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah all everybody knows the top bars are the best but <laughs> i'm just kidding i'm just kidding people are throwing tomatoes right now <laughs> i'm used to it that's okay <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in and following along for another uh, hypothetical conversation about That's different right. things and theorizing yeah. on how something could or couldn't work. And again, it's just out there to make you think, really. I you love know, it's, that. It's just to make you stop and think about what really goes on and how it works and what all goes into it. And does it apply to your beekeeping? Is it something you should incorporate or not? That's all. That's the most important thing. Are you a commercial beekeeper or are you a backyard beekeeper? What are your goals? What are your uh, practices and wishes for your apiary? You're laughing. I'm laughing <laughs> because I'm thinking, I was thinking of Ken, you know, and it was like day one, he hadn't even gotten any of his hives yet. We had the, the whole thing frameworked out on how it was supposed to go. And he's already dreaming of being a commercial beekeeper. He doesn't even know how to do a beekeeping yet, but he's dreaming of being a commercial beekeeper. And I'm like, dude, yeah. like, you know, and then especially as things played out, you don't even want to put in the work to go out and do this, but you want more hives? Like, how does that work? It's hard yeah. work. Yeah. yeah, it is hard work. So when you said, you know, are you a commercial beekeeper or are you a backyard beekeeper? And right, then I'm right. like, in my brain, I'm like, that's where a backyard kind of... beekeeper with grandiose expectations of commercial concepts. <laughs> commercial, are you a commercial beekeeper wannabe? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, fascinating things. But uh, 
Anyhow, yeah, we'll wrap it up there. So thank you again, everybody, for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it and look forward to talking to you again next week. But as always, until then, be good. And be mindful. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. This Hive Jive production was made possible by amazing patrons like you. And we appreciate your support. To all our Hive Jive junkies out there, you truly are the bee's knees.